If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7, please. Luke chapter 7. We're going to begin at verse 11. We're looking at verses 11 through 17. But before we do, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you as our Lord and our God, and we give you thanks. We praise you for your word. We praise you for giving it to us and helping us to see it and understand it. And I ask this morning, Father, as we open it and as we walk through it, that you would help us to see the glories and the goodness and the the blessings of Jesus, that we would know the power of his resurrection, that we would know the riches of our inheritance in him. That, Father, we would see Jesus clearly and be forever changed knowing that we're in him. May we get that, and may we see him clearly this morning. Exalt him, lift him up, and praise him, because he's so good. I thank you, Father, for what you've done in him, through him, and for us. So help us see. Amen. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, it says, Soon afterward, after Jesus had went to Capernaum, he went to the town called Nain. Now, Nain is just south of Capernaum. So just south of that is this town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You know, as I studied this passage this week, I was struck by the depths of the gospel and how no matter how much you mine it, no matter how much you think about it, no matter how much you contemplate it, no matter how much you study it, you just can't get to the bottom of it. There's one layer after another, one gem after another. It seems to unfold before me at times like this spring flower. And then all of a sudden, there's times when it feels like it's closed off by winter clouds. And it's like you can't see for looking. So then you search, and I find myself searching, and you cry out, and God gives more light. And then you think you've found the treasure, and then come to realize a new problem and have a new question. So then you search, you cry out, and God gives some more gems. And then you take the gems and try to figure out how those relate to one another, and then you feel lost. So you cry out to God, and He gives more light. And with the new light, everything seems to fit together and come together so, so well, at least for a while. Then you have a new question, a new struggle, and the journey begins again. That's really actually what my week has been like. 
I see the glories of Jesus, I ponder it for a while, and then a new question arises, and I start wrestling again. And I finally, light brings, comes, and if you, you feel elated, and then all of a sudden the clouds of confusion set in, and you start to cry out again, and God brings more light. My prayer today for us, as we look at this passage, is that God will give us a clearer understanding and bring loads of light into the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done. And that this, we don't read about a Jesus and study a Jesus who's, you know, yeah, those 2,000 plus years ago, there's a man lived and he did these amazing things. But we understand something about this particular passage and who this Jesus is and what he's doing right now in our midst. But to begin, I want us to notice something here. That Jesus sees the brokenness of this world. He sees brokenness. Jesus is about to enter the town called Nain. And as he approaches, he notices several things. There's a man who's died and was being carried out of the city. He was the only son of his mother, and this, this lady, his mother, was a widow. This is a situation where Jesus is putting all the pieces together and he sees the brokenness. He sees, obviously, the weeping. He sees the procession. He sees that it's a funeral. He's, he's looking at it and perceiving that this is, this is a broken situation. Once again, the fallen world, the brokenness of the world is presented to Jesus. And in this particular case, it's a mother who's losing the only thing she had left in this world. Imagine, moms, you're a widow, your husband has died, and your only child left, and now he's dead. And Jesus sees this. He, he, and, he, and when he sees this, he doesn't say, oh, suck it up, princess. Don't you know this all work out for your good because God is in control? Oh, you have little faith. I can't believe it. He sees the brokenness, and it pains him. So he wants to do something about it. He sees the brokenness of our world and wants to do something about it. Jesus is bothered by the brokenness. He sees what's happening and he doesn't like it. Yet often as Christians, if we see the brokenness of the world, we see the brokenness around us in this world, and we're not broken by it ourselves. We often think that you know, people, perhaps they had it coming to them. Or if we're really pious, we think, well, you know what? You just need to, to stay under control because it, God works all things out for good. So we're not bothered by it. It doesn't disturb us too much often. But rather we have, we can become very cold and callous towards it. Perhaps we see people and we know the life they've lived and we see the life they lived in as we watch them and we watch the brokenness of their own lives, their own world. It doesn't grieve us. We think, you idiot, you had it coming to you. You had it coming to you. But I'm sure these people had it coming to them in that sense as well, right? I mean, who doesn't really? So Jesus sees their world. He sees the brokenness and he isn't cynical about it. He isn't smug because he knows all things. He sees the brokenness of the world and it breaks him. It bothers him. Yet we all, we all know that our lives, the lives we live, 
personally and around us, we continue to live in a broken world. And Jesus continues to be bothered by the brokenness. We experience death and loss of loved ones. We feel the pain of sickness. And we all desperately need to be saved. And the only, and the only reason we have any comfort in this life, comfort and peace and joy and goodness, is because of Jesus. Because he sees brokenness and his heart goes out toward it. And this is why Jesus calls us, we're called to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. And to come alongside those who experience the pain and the brokenness of this world and be Jesus to them. Because as Jesus sees the brokenness, we see his response in verse 13. What does he do? Jesus has compassion. It says explicitly, and when he, the Lord saw her, what happened? What does it say in verse 13? He had compassion on her. He had compassion. In other words, Jesus' heart broke over the situation. He felt her pain and was moved to do something about it. The Gospels are littered with this expression about Jesus. Jesus sees the crowds. He sees the hurt. He sees the pain. He sees the brokenness of some sort. And you know what it says in the Gospels about Jesus? He had compassion. He's moved with compassion. This reveals to us the heart of Jesus. He wasn't some distant, cold sovereign. He was a personal savior who got in the trenches with the people and had compassion on them. And we know that Jesus is the expressed image of the invisible God. In Jesus you see the deity, the fullness of the deity dwelling. And you see the heart of God. Now, clearly we could ask a question at this point. I think sometimes we step back, and as, even as wrestling with this text, I ask the question, thought of it, okay, Jesus sees the brokenness. He's moved with compassion. And then he, he, he moves forward to save and to deliver and to heal in the situation. So we can reason from that and ask a bigger question. We know, okay, if, if Jesus was revealing the heart of God, And he has compassion. The heart of God is one of compassion. And he sees the evil. He sees the pain. He sees the brokenness. Then the next logical question is, why doesn't he heal everybody? Why doesn't he take it all away? Ooh, good question. It's the problem of evil, really. And I actually started to dive into this question and wrestle with it a bit. And as I've wrestled with it several times in the past, and I was going to attempt to Uh, explain why this is the case, that was not a good idea. This this sermon blew up to about three other sermons, and I realized I just cut, remove, no, we won't go there. And the reason being is because it, there's no way to do it justice with just trying to say it as a mere sub-point of what I'm saying. I just can't. However, if you are interested in studying this question further, there are two sources that have tremendously helped me throughout the years as I've wrestled with it. And one is John Frame's an apologetics, uh, apologetics to the Glory of God. He has a treatment there of the problem of evil is just marvelous, one of the best I've ever read. If you're interested in wrestling with that, it's wonderful. Another one, it isn't directly related, but it gives the framework for the 
to answer the question in a brilliant way that coincides with what Frame says is uh, Ralph Smith's Trinity and Reality. And here's, let me just say briefly, the reason why God doesn't take away all the suffering, the evil. And at the same time, he is moved with compassion. And why, if he's all-powerful, if he's all-good, if he's moved with compassion, why does he not? Well, simply stated, and this is just simply stated, he doesn't take it away because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are seeking above any other thing, above all things, to glorify and manifest the greatness of each other. However, at the same time, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit love creation, and they want what's best for it. There is a tension there. However, one is greater than the other. The greatest love wins out. The one you love the most is the one you serve the most. And it's just that Here's the issue. Jesus loves the Father and the Son and their glory above everything else. So he's turned, torn between the two. He loves the Father, loves the Spirit, wants to glorify them. At the same time, he loves creation. He loves his people. He loves them and has compassion on them. But he's willing that one would suffer, that the other would be glorified. And now there's a lot more to be said about that. And there's a lot about this. Because the reason why Jesus is feeling compassion on the one hand, here you see him feeling compassion, and he does something to this particular person. But what about all the other people in the world that he knows are suffering in this broken world? And he has compassion for them too. So why does he just take it all away? Well, because through this suffering and through all that's happening in the world, he knows that the Father, Son, and the Spirit, as they seek to glorify and love one another, this is a means to an end, and the greater good is their glory, their manifest, uh, the manifestation of their goodness, their holiness, justice, power, love, and wrath, and on and on we go. I'm sure that didn't satisfy you. But it's the, the simple answer to a very complex question that is wonderful to search out because I tell you what, all of us have to at some point wrestle with the question. It becomes obvious. Jesus, the heart of God, has compassion. There is brokenness in this world. And then we see that he has the power to heal it, to take it away. Now the next obvious question is why not? Search that out. There is a beautiful answer to it. But it's very involved. And this is what I want us to see here in this particular case. Even though on a grand scale there's these big questions, there's something that we, want, I, we need to see here. And that Jesus, when he sees the brokenness, he has compassion. What does he do? He acts and he responds with power. Look at verse 14. Then he came up and touched the buyer. Buyer, by the way, is a platform that people carry, and on it sits the corpse, lays the corpse, not sits, lays the corpse. We today use a coffin and poles in the side, and we have, we have handles to carry the coffin. But the buyer is, is actually a platform that, would, that the pallbearers would carry, and the person would lie on top of it. They're much less squeamish about the visible presence of death. He stu- he, he, so Jesus comes up and touches the buyer, and the bearers, the, those who are bearing this buyer, stood still. And he said, young man, 
I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, Jesus, notice the simplicity of this. He doesn't go on to a big, long, complex prayer. He doesn't do anything, but just simply says, look how short the sentence is. Young man, I say to you, arise. And what happens? Boom. Just like that. He arises. Now, if somebody can say with a few words those that make that simple statement and someone rises up from the dead, you have just experienced power that you've never seen in your life. Now, this is, it's hard for us even to imagine. Because what, what this says here is exactly what happened to us. What happens? What is their response? Do they start dancing? Well, there's, they're torn because this is amazing. But what, what verse 16, the very first thing it says is fear seized them all. They were terrified. Well, why? Well, it is terrifying to be in the presence of someone or something that has so much power that at a moment you think that power better be for my good because if that person has that kind of power and it's turned for my bad, that's not so good. That's really not good. It's always terrifying to be in the presence of awesome power. Kind of like massive waves. If you're on the beach, watching from a safe distance, it's beautiful, amazing. Wow, look at those beautiful waves. Rolling in, just so nice. But have you ever been in the middle of them? Get out there and try that. Get out in some 10, 15-foot waves if you, if you don't mind risking your life. And what will happen is that you will be absolutely terrified. They turn from pretty and pristine and nice to mean and vicious and terrible, just like that. And I've, most people, if, have you all played in the beach break right close? Most of us have played there, right? Little tiny two, three waves that just rip the shorts right off you, pound you into the sand. And it's kind of fun. You know, it's, they kind of, you know, you can have fun in those little waves. But I don't know if you've ever experienced the big ones at all. When I first learned surfing, I experienced the big ones. And when I first went out there, I almost drowned just trying to paddle out. They grabbed me. It felt like the power was terrifying because it held me under with such ease, there's nothing I could do. All my struggling was in vain. And it was just tumbling me like I was in a, a washing machine. And there was nothing I could do until it decided to let me up. And it was absolutely terrifying. But I tell you what, from the beach, oh, beautiful. And that's what we're, we're, we're 2,000 plus years removed. We're, looking, we're at the beach. We're looking back and watching this and saying, oh, that would have been cool to be there. That would have been just great. But... We have to understand, folks, it's different in the middle of the wave. And, you know, notice the word here. It says fear seized what? Some of them? All. Fear seized them all because they were in the midst of awesome power. And then, they, obviously, they glorify God. They praise him. There's praise. Clearly, God has visited his people. A great prophet has arisen amongst us. This is awesome. But they're seized with fear because 
that's what we're like. We're creatures who like, we, it's, it's wonderful, that power is wonderful, but if you get so close to somebody who can actually speak and do what he just did, there's no one on planet earth who can tell, walk up to a dead person and say, arise, and they get up and arise. The moment you see that, that would terrify you. But you even know what's more amazing? Something occurred to me this week as I was studying this passage. What's more amazing here isn't so much the event that happened 2,000 years ago, But do you realize the same Jesus, this Jesus who did this, this same Jesus with this same power to those who are his people, to Christians, do you realize that Jesus dwells in us and works through us? Now, that thought messed me up this week. Because there's something about this that we have to really understand the glories the riches and the goodness of the gospel john 16 which was read for us this morning jesus says that it was better that he go away and why so unless i go away the spirit would not come it is one of those glorious aspects of the gospel that paul prayed that the believers in ephesus that they would understand the glories of it That Jesus, by the Spirit, would come and dwell in his people. No longer outside, but in them. Ephesians 1, 16 through 20. Here's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So clearly, the Spirit needs to give us eyes to see, according to Paul. He's praying for these Christians that they would see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That we would understand and know the riches of our inheritance in Christ. That you would get it. He says, "I I wish that you would understand what has been done for you. Because when the Spirit allows us to see when we get what Jesus has done, when we understand the depths of the gospel for us in our lives, we'll see that the same Jesus who raised this widow's son from the dead dwells in us. And that right there is one profound thought. He dwells in us. So many of our problems in the Christian life, I think, come from a failure to understand this very thing. This, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. And here's what I mean. We're too, all too often Christians who are defeated, drained, impatient, proud, envious, lustful, covetous, angry, and so on and so forth. And yet at the same time, we want so bad to be different. We want to be like Jesus. We want to do what is right. We want to love and have joy overflowing. But we wonder what is wrong with us, and we ask, where is the power of Jesus in my life? Here is the problem. 
We keep trying to live the Christian life in the power of our flesh instead of the power of Jesus. It's like we're stuck in Romans 7 and don't know the glorious news of Romans 8. In Romans 7, let me read it for you, and I'm sure by experience you can relate to what he's saying here because it's very common among us. Romans seven fifteen and following says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but the, not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And in this conclusion to this, he says this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? To which the answer comes in verse 25, Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which he goes on to, he says, thanks, praises him for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then starts to, to, to elaborate in chapter 8 what that means. Why does he say that? Because in chapter 8, he says in verses 1 and 2, that Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death and has brought us into the law of the spirit of life. He then concludes this whole section of chapter 8 about the new life in Christ in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 8, saying, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what does that mean? It means that the Spirit of Jesus dwells in us. And will lead us, empower us, direct us, and fulfill all righteousness in us if, if we submit to him and follow his lead. Those who are led by the Spirit. Those who follow the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit. But, on the other hand, if we attempt to do anything on our own, we are walking according to the flesh. According to our own self-will. According to our own our own ability, according to our own strength. And we are going to find ourselves doing nothing but failing, with no power, consciously trapped in the cycle of Romans chapter 7, wondering how do you get out. What we have to realize, children of God, those who are children of God, the same Jesus and the power of the resurrection, the same Jesus dwells in you. Think about that for a moment. The same Jesus dwells in you. Now, we, with that thought, this is what we typically do. We think that that must mean that all of a sudden, oh, wow, he's in control. I don't even know what's happening. don't know what's going on, but all I can tell is that someone else is here and not me. We think that that's what that means. It's not what it means. Because walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit of Jesus is within us, requires our submission to the Spirit. The the Spirit is more than happy if you will not submit and obey and walk in submission to, to say, no problem, let's watch how you do. 
Oh, you fail. Okay, you want to try it again? Oh, you do. Okay, keep doing it. All right, this is, how's this working out for you? And so that's the trap of Romans 7. Is like, there's a will to do it, but I do not find the strength to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't even understand because I find myself willing, desiring, making resolutions, saying, you know, have you ever had something in your life, I guarantee it, that you're frustrated with, that sin that just won't let go, and you find out, you, you, man, you read any book you can find on it. Ten tips to getting con- anger under control. Because what you continue to do is work on your self-effort. And what you're not doing is submitting and surrendering to the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to live in your life. Because walking by the Spirit is our growth and sanctification, and it's a process. It's a whole new way of living and walking. We're not used to walking like that. We're used to living and walking by self-effort. We're used to living and walking by the flesh. We're used to living and walking with self-in-control. And the whole idea, we talk about this walking by the Spirit and letting Jesus in us live through us, is like, can you repeat that again? I'm not sure. How does that work? We don't understand the process. But you know what it's like. This is what it's like. I was thinking of... I was praying, God, what's, what's a great analogy for this? And I don't know, hopefully this is help, helpful. Because we're like, we're like a guy who has this amazing car with 500 horsepower in it, high-octane gasoline, and it really is something else. This thing will jump off the street if you hit the pedal. But he's pushing it around. He's got the door open, and he's pushing it around the street. Some guy goes up to him and says, what's wrong? Is something wrong with your car? No, nothing wrong with it. What are you doing? Just going for a cruise. It's like, what are you talking about? He's like, get in the car. I mean, why don't, if you want to turn it on and just just go. I says, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, that's the whole idea. You, that car you have, that car you have has tremendous amounts of power. Look at it. It has got. Uh, more than enough power than you could imagine. You should get in there, turn it on, and see what it's like. So he gets in there, turns the key on, hits the gas pedal, and he cannot believe the power. He cannot believe how unbelievably good this is. And he's excited. He's like, wow, I had no idea. And so often, you know what we're like? We're like the guy who has the 500-horsepower, high-octane engine with us, but we're out pushing, we're out striving, we're out wrestling, and we're doing these things and not understanding, not knowing who it is that dwells in us. We just go back to this story, and when you, re- when you read this story, and this is something that hit me about this power of Jesus that sees them all with fear, and what he did, he's like, wow, his mere word, he can cause someone to, to rise to life. This same Jesus dwells in us. And so many Christians go around mis- not understanding what's under the hood. Why do you think Paul prayed for the Ephesians? I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be opened. That you would see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That you would understand. That you would know what it means. And here's the problem. We ask questions. We don't understand exactly. Okay, so you're saying... The Spirit of Christ, this Jesus, dwells in us by the Spirit. 
And this power is ours, but we're, we're confused as to how it is we walk, how it is we incorporate this, how it is we, we do this, because we're, we're not really sure. We're so used to understanding self-effort, but we don't understand what it means to submit ourselves and walk according to the Spirit. Do you have that struggle? Do you know that struggle? Because that's, the, that's, that's our biggest struggle so often is learning to know what it means to submit to and surrender to the Spirit. Because the moment we talk about submitting and surrendering, we go like this. Is this your question? What do I do? I just stand there? What does that mean? Like, is all of a sudden, I, I say, I don't know what to do. I haven't been led yet. I don't know where to go. Well, well no. You, you go about your life. You get up. Put your pants on the same way. Put your socks on. You go about life. But here's two things that need to be happened. You need to be, one, conscious of the fact that Jesus dwells in you by the Spirit. And two, you need to learn to give up self-effort and allow Him and His strength and His power to work in and through you. And you know what's amazing? Even as this week, as I was wrestling with this and, and thinking about it, and at times, you know, it overwhelmed me and hit me to understand this same Jesus dwells in me. And as you think about that, and that's, that idea really grips you, it's quite astounding. And as you do submit to the Spirit, what you'll notice is the fruit of the Spirit comes out. But when you forget about this, you forget about Jesus dwelling in you and you just go about your day and you get caught up in it, you move and act and live in your own strength and your own power and you watch the flesh start to manifest itself. And what's amazing is that it's a great reminder because this week all of a sudden there's times when anger sprouts up and you're like frustrated and angry and all of a sudden because I've been in the midst of this and studying this, I go, wait a second. I'm right now, I know I'm walking according to the flesh. And Lord Jesus, I need you to forgive me, and I submit to you now at this point. And what's, what's, what is amazing is the joy, the peace, the patience. It's, it's like a, just this incredible calming effect on the soul to submit and completely surrender to the power of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. This isn't something that you get, understand, and think, okay, wow, I get it. Done, fixed. No, it's a, pro- a process of sanctification where we learn to walk and live a different way. We learn to walk according to the Spirit. We learn to submit our lives daily, in every moment, in every, in every turn of the day, under His authority and power. We submit to Him. We're not good at that. We've walked according to the flesh, and we've formed patterns according to the flesh. And so we're so used to walking and living according to our flesh that we so often miss and understand the greatness of his immeasurable power toward us. The glories of the gospel. Do you realize that Jesus didn't just pay for our sin? He's done it all from beginning to end. Everything for you. He's still doing everything for you, even all righteousness being performed in your life. And so that anything good that comes out of you, it says you submit to him and he works in and through you. And at the end of the day, what do you have left but absolute and utter praise from top to bottom? That God is awesome, that he is glorious, that Jesus, there's nothing good in me, nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. The only good in me is what God has worked in me through His Spirit. There's nothing left but praise. If you see anything good, you can guarantee it's not from me. It's what the Lord Jesus has worked through me as I submit to the Spirit. 
Where are you at? What's going on in your life? Do you find your life defeated? Do you feel like you, you're just constantly struggling? That you have, you know, there's, just, there's little joy, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of frustration. You find yourself just not able to live and to walk the Christian life? I'll guarantee you, it's because you are walking according to the flesh and not according to the power of the Jesus that you see here in the text of Luke. Learn to walk according to the Spirit, and what will come out of your life are the fruits of the Spirit. Then, the brokenness of Jesus and His compassion, as He looks at the brokenness of the world, as has compassion on the world and acts, will be what happens to you. You will have the heart of Jesus. You will see the brokenness of the world. It will break you. You will have compassion. You want to act. Why? Jesus is in you, working in and through you. But if you try to force that, I am going to be compassionate. I am going to see the brokenness of this world, and I am going to be broken. I am going to act accordingly and do what I need to do. Good luck with that one. You will recognize there's no power of the Spirit then. None. The Spirit is is happy to see you fail so that you learn the lesson to submit to Jesus. Because Jesus does it all and gets all the glory every last ounce of it. Amen. Father, we're so grateful and thankful that in Jesus everything is done. Everything. We're so thankful, Father, that in us now dwell, you dwell by the Spirit, that the Lord Jesus is in us that you've empowered us. Oh, Father, help us to see the power, the unsearchable power of your greatness toward us, the, the true riches of our inheritance in Christ, that we would understand what has been done for us, who we are in him, what we possess in him, and that we, oh, Lord God, we would submit to the Spirit, and we would walk according to the Spirit, and we would not have our wills, but we would want nothing and only your will, and we would submit to you in all things, for we ask this in Christ. Amen.